0: Thank you. Welcome to another riveting episode of Hollow Waters Podcast. I am your host, Matthew Spitzky, and we are the Cognito Ergo Sum, I Think, Therefore I Flyfish podcast, as our good friend and fellow flyfisher, Rene Descartes said. Um, we are now into part three of a wonderful series that we are doing called Below the Meniscus the evolution and art of fly fishing below the surface with nymphs and wet flies and uh it's a it's a great series um uh thanks to all the wonderful letters and uh, well, letters we don't get letters anymore we get emails and we get social media comments and uh we get email yes emails and direct messages instant messages uh we don't get any tiktoks though i don't do the tiktok thing i should. Uh, Lewandowski, uh, dances on tiktok which is kind of weird he needs to be scoring goals for barcelona not dancing on tiktok but anyways all you tiktokers there we might be coming to tiktok as our drone flies around the galaxy looking for wonderful places and exotic places to trout salmon and steelhead fish in all these great new era of destinations that our good friend ernie schwiebert was so pioneering in it fought in in bringing us these places and Lee Wolf and all these other great visionaries that were flying and unfortunately some met their deaths that way and uh but anyways that's what we're doing our drone is still going strong after a thousand days we haven't gotten shot down yet because we don't wave any Chinese flags and um, that is our gig. So, all you trap bomb troubadours, you hatch matching, code cracking, bug craze crusaders, you dirty nymphing ninja warriors, the nymphing ninja warriors. This one is for you, because we have a very, very special program um, today. We are coming to you from Norfolk, Norfolk, England, and uh, we have a very distinguished guest that uh, I am so proud that we finally got to come on this podcast and no one better than this gentleman to talk about the subject matter uh that uh, we are going to talk about today which is the origins of traditional nymphing and then we are going to get into euro nymphing and then we're gonna you know talk about bobber nymphing oh excuse me indicator nymphing and uh, other things of that nature uh but anyways um our condolences out to the people of israel that have suffered uh, in this latest craziness that is going on in the world. Um, and uh, to all the people that have afflictions and are going through illnesses and can't be on the stream. Uh, we are prayers and blessings out to you. Um, and uh, hopefully you can uh, join us on this podcast. We're always saving uh, saving a space, a chair for you and a big pint of bitters or a big glass of good whiskey especially Scottish whiskey and, uh, and of course, American bourbons, which I've gotten into quite a bit lately. And uh, so anyways, that is uh, where we're at. And uh, the Davy Wooten thing came across great. I've never gotten so many um, uh, response correspondences from people about how much they liked it, how they fished traditional wet flies, how the wet fly became a thing of the past. Now you don't see many in people's boxes. Um, but so many people still love to fish wet flies and swing wet flies and fish them upstream and upstream and across and dead drifting and all kinds of things that we talked about and how the wet fly really transitioned. So uh, to listen to this one, I would highly suggest listening to the part one and part two that I did with Davey Wooten, uh, an Anglophile in uh, Arkansas and uh, the Englishman in Arkansas. It's a new song by Sting, not an Englishman in New York, but... An Englishman in Arkansas. So, Davey, out to you, buddy. Also out to our good, um, my sounding board gentleman, Joe Chabayos, the uh, president of the Catskill Fly Tires Guild. This guy is probably the most uh, astute historian on the planet Earth today about fly fishing history. This guy delves into everything. Uh, He's going to be the archive chair for the uh, English Club of New York. And, um, he is a man that gives me a soundboard if I did well, or we didn't do well on my podcasts, because he listens to them thoroughly. And, uh, Jay Lee and all these other, uh, traditionalists, uh, shout out to you guys, uh, Jay Lee, we're going to have you on, maybe with you and Joe, that would be wonderful. Jay Lee's in Europe. And, um, so anyways, that is where we're at, um, and keep uh, comments coming, and it's always great to hear from you. What we're trying to do with these podcasts is be books on tape. We are trying to take a subject matter and cover it. We're just not broing. We're like, we're not, hey, bro, hey, bro, 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 dude, dude, we're not doing that shit. Let other people do that. We don't really care about that. It's fun to do, but we're, uh, we're about the... Cognito part of this whole fly fishing journey of the thinking man's fly fisher, and uh, that's what brings us today. But we've got a, one big fly fish thinking man fly fisher today. Skews that we're going to talk about. Uh, this guy was the existentialist of fly fishing, and uh, it's very interesting. Uh, the British uh, just took everything, and you know, we. Um, I was talking to Joe Chabas the other day. And uh, you know, you're talking about Cutcliffe, how in the eighteen hundreds he was so advanced in wet fly fishing, he was designing lines and tapers and rod tapers, and you know, and then of course Skews came along, which which our guest today is gonna to talk about. And of course, Sawyer came along, which our guest is really intimate with. Um, and um, you know, he designed his own tapers and uh, you know, he got up, he got hooked up with Charles Ritz and they designed the Pizon Michel parabolic tapers for nymphing and all the long rods and even Cutcliffe back in the 1800s was talking about 12-foot rods. And so it was quite the journey. And uh, this journey just keeps getting better and better. But so our guest today, I am going to get into, um, let me give you his uh, his long intro. He is an angling historian, writer, and committed trout fisherman who has fly fish for pike and grayling at home and abroad. He has had articles published in leading UK magazines, including fly fishing and fly tying and trout and salmon and in magazines in Australia, Fly Life and the Czech Republic on Czech nymphing. He has fished a number of times in Sweden, including the Arctic in Swedish Lapland for trout, Arctic char, grilling and pike, France and most recently in New Zealand on both the South Island and twice on the North Island. He ties all his own flies and enjoys building fly rods, too. He lives in Norfolk, as we talked about. Yeah, Where he's the chairman of the Bintree Mill Trout Fishery on the River Wensum, a Norfolk chalk stream. In 1999, he caught his biggest UK fish, where a wild brown trout that weighed four pounds, two ounces on a home tied copper bead head sawyer pheasant tail. His most recent book is Nymph Fishing in Perspective, which is self published and you could buy from Amazon and other online book sellers. Google would bring up plenty of stock lists. His first book was Nymph Fishing A History of the Art and Practice which was published in 2005 (laughs) Marriott, uh, Prince of the Fly Fishers, The Life and Times of George Selwyn Marriott Marriott, published in 2010 I swallowed on my my, uh, quickness there, Uh, excuse me Um, thus without further ado he is the heir apparent to the seductive Sawyer's sequacious subsurface site nymphing supremacy. He penetrates his pheasant tails with a perplexing proper and poignant prowess. He is the one of the last of the savvy chalk stream, fishy shadow seeking nymphing savours. Welcome the one and only Terry Lawton. How are you, Sir Terry Lawton?
1: Hello, Matt. I'm very glad to be joining you and uh, look forward to our discussion.
0: Wonderful, wonderful. Tell us about uh, what's going on in Norfolk, England these days. Uh, The weather, we've been hearing all kinds of things about the weather in Europe. People are freaking out because it's winter in Europe. Tell us about that.
1: Well, we've been fortunate. Uh, We've had some cold days and one or two quite sharp frosts overnight. But uh, so far, we haven't had any uh, snow, which is... uh, a blessing really um it, it means you know we can get out and about without any problems we don't have to shovel snow off our doorsteps every day
0: well that's that's good to know uh but it is winter and we're calling for an el nino winter which means we're supposed to be warmer and drier but uh we've had one hell of a winter so far since early november and it's been winter and uh, i was up uh chasing my <coughs> my atlantic salmon and uh, for three, four weeks, and I was freezing the whole time, and it was snowing, of course. It wasn't, we had some sunshine. One thing we have, we don't see much of is sunshine in Michigan, and today we have a blue sky and sunshine, and I am so happy. I won't have to turn on my Verilux Happy Lamp, which is a uh, vitamin D deficiency lamp. It's a sun lamp, like you went to the tanning spa when you were younger to get a hot tan so you could be the coolest coolest gig on the beach, Um, this lamp you put on your desk while you're typing and you spend about 30, 40 minutes under it and it gives you a great feeling. And then you get a buzz and then you realize you did too much and you're flying around the middle of the night walking around. But anyways, don't do it unless you know how to do it properly. Let's get into the meat and potatoes of what we've talked about. The transition from, you know, what, you know, Stewart and, and Cutcliffe and Pritt and Edmonds and these guys talking about in the wet Fly gig. Um. You know, how did it, where did you see that true transition start to take place, uh, Terry, in your writings um, that we started to investigate the nymph so much? And how do you envision that whole big switch from wet flies to nymphs? Um, give us your perspective.
1: I think it's probably true to say that a lot of the uh, wet fly fishermen were inadvertently or un unknowingly perhaps a better word uh, fishing their wet flies as as nymphs and uh, the fish were taking them thinking that they they were nymphs and it wasn't really until uh, skews came along that um, wet fly fishing became nymph fishing you know with it with the flu with the flies that uh skews developed and tied and and fished um so you know you've written
0: a tremendous amount about nymphing um where where did um where did it all start for you uh, from a nymphing perspective? Why did you get so enamored with the nymph as opposed to so many Brits are dry fly f- fanatics? Um, the river test, you, when I fished the test back in the 80s when I was a young man, um, uh, you could still only fish the test with dry flies. Nymphing was totally abhorred. Even though I, when I went off on my carriers by my hotel, I, I threw a nymph at these fish and they went absolutely crazy. Um, but, you know, how did you get so, tell us a little bit about your background, where did it start, where did you get into it, who are your mentors along the way, what what made Terry Lawton what he is today?
1: You're asking me a question to which I don't actually have an answer, because I have no uh, sort of real reco- recollection of when I started Nymph fishing and getting getting involved in it. Um, interestingly, I did actually buy um, some uh, cards of nymphs from uh, Frank Sawyer's wife. Um, one or two of which I've I've still got, and you know I I, I bought them uh, what th- thirty or more years ago uh, to fish, and I probably should have kept them um, as as museum exhibits, but uh, I have actually bought some more recently th- from a, a Swedish friend who knew of a fishing tackle shop in the south of Sweden that was closing down and had got some soya nymphs in stock, so I was able to uh, replace the ones that I used. But um, as I say, I can't really give you a sort of precise Date or reason. I mean, I think it was probably while I was fishing, you know, I, was, I hope I was observant and looking to see what was going on and seeing that fish were not always taking the flies on the surface but you could see the the, the, the rise forms of, of of nymphing fish and so i, I gradually decided that uh, that that was the way to uh, catch a lot of fish um, you know fishing nymphs upstream and uh, presenting nice juicy meals to hungry fish
0: yeah um what were you? a chalk stream person does it that where you see what I think, what I really fancy a lot. Interesting um, is that you're the, a lot of the observations that Sawyer and um, Skews made um, were, were really specific to chalk streams because um, you know, the North country is a little different. It's rockier. The streams are more babbling brooks and little, little rivulence and, and moving quickly and fast through the, through the gradients. Um, you don't have that much time to observe trout, but on the on the chalk streams, uh, they were the laboratory, and it couldn't have been better, um, better laboratory to bring about um the observations that were made on nymphing, uh, because the water is crystal clear, as you know, in a chalk stream. It is, it is you could see the trout behave in one spot, they don't move around a lot because the currents are less. Um so that's the nature of how nymphing really started and then you go to the euro nymphing or chuck nymphing or polish nymphing or eu nymphing whatever you want to call it and that whole technique you don't really see a lot of observed observations of fish taking ties you're just fishing out of feel and you're fishing out of tightness and tight line nymphing uh, because they were born on the Carpathian Alps uh the Carpathian mountain streams um and they eventually got into competitive fishing, uh, but originally they were meant to catch fish and catch a lot of fish to bring home to the table um before comp fishing started and then fishing became into the table turned into inches <clears throat> and and quantities and um, so uh, on your uh, streams the 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 when some is uh, is that sort of a chalk stream where you have a good observation? is that what fueled a lot of your observation?
1: It, it, it is a tr- chalk stream, but uh, when you look at it, it's slightly different in character from the uh, better known chalk streams in Hampshire, you know the test and the itchin' and uh, so on. But you're quite right about your earlier comment about uh, you know, the North Country rivers being uh, much more turbulent and better suited to uh, wet fly fishing than, than, than nymph fishing. But, as you say, the great thing about uh, chalk streams is the uh, supreme clarity. You know, we've referred to uh, the water being gin clear, and uh, the, the clarity of the water meant that skews. At uh, Sawyer and uh, Oliver Kite uh, were able to see the the fish to which they were casting without the need for wearing Polaroid glasses, which we probably all wear today. And uh, the the flows were a little bit steadier as well, which 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 helped and made life, I think, uh, quite a lot easier.
0: Where um, you know. I'm going to just sum up what Sawyer said in Nymphs and the Trout, Uh, what the traditional nymph fashing is. You know, he said, uh, quote, Sawyer, nymph fishing, if you are to be successful, is indeed a matter of being careful. It is not just the business of throwing a nymph at all likely places and hoping the fish will take it. You turn yourself into a hunter and with all the keenness of a stalker after a stag, figure wits and your eyesight against the facilities and faculties of the wild fish who are on the feed and continually on the lookout for nymphs moving in the water below. So <clears throat> early on when he wrote Nymphs and the Trout, this was sort of a direct schism to what we do today in the Euro game, where we cast about and cover every inch of water uh, thoroughly. And we, we pragmatically, with our Euro setup, we are going to find that feeding lane where those trout are. And if you find that feeding lane, you'll find usually find several nice trout in that feeding lane. So it's like panning for gold, but here he says, you don't, you turn yourself into a hunter and a keen stalker. Um, and it's not just a business of throwing a nymph at all likely places. So, Early on, there was that big distinction between just throwing a bobber out there with an indicator with flies and hoping something's underneath it. Here, you were a hunter. So, um, would you say, Terry, that um, that is where that is how you would define traditional nymphing um,
1: from the Euro nymphing? How's your impersonation? Go ahead. Very much so, because Euro nymphing and its forebears and so on is all developed by competition fishermen for catching as many fish as they they can in the shortest possible time. Whereas Sawyer, in particular, and and uh, Oliver Kite as well, they they both uh, wanted to fish to fish that they could see were taking nymphs, in very much the same way as the uh, traditional dry fly man likes to fish to fish that he can he can see rising. you know the, 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 there there are similarities between nymph fishing and uh, dry fishing in that uh, in in both forms of fishing you the, you know the ultimate is to cast to a fish that you can see is is, is feeding on either a nymph or taking dry flies on the surface
0: yeah um so this, you know, we, we always look at nymphing as 90% of the food constantly bombarded, you know, the fish is bombarded by edible objects. How does he sift out? How does, how does the fish know? Yes, there are, you know, in autopsies of stomachs, uh, you find twigs, you find rocks, you find pebbles, you find, they're not always that perfect. Um, and I think there's times when they get sloppy and stupid and, um, you know, things of that nature. <clears throat> and, um, You know, the bone marrow scoop, you know, the, um, you know, the things that we did, um, devised the first stomach pump, you know, so when you look at, um, GEM skews and we're going to talk a lot about him and we're gonna talk a lot about Sawyer, uh, you know, he was really into finding out precisely, this was the naturalist that we talked about that Ronald's came along with, um that sort of changed that whole wet fly to nymph thing. And it was the naturalist that came about that we started poking around more and not just relying on the flies tied in the tree ties by Juliana. And that was the way things were going to be. And then, you know, and then we got into, you know, Marriott and Halford, you're going to talk about them. Um, but that bone marrow scoop, that naturalist, um, you know, and I'm going to just take a quote from a uh, and minor tactics for chalk stream trout, Uh, He says, in the succeeding 11 years I have made other attempts to represent nymphs, I was hampered by the need to carry out hateful and messy autopsies to ascertain on what might trout were feeding until towards the end of it, I was struck with the idea of using a marrow scoop to extract the contents of a trout's stomach in a single operation. I was amazed to see what a huge portion of these contents were nymphs and how Few were the wing flies, so uh, you know he immediately justifies his whole uh, treatise that of his treatise is um, you know it was he he was already looking to that ninety percent of the trout food bombarded by ed- edible objects. Did you ever use stomach pumps or a marrow scoop or or how do the Brits do it? I know you know you kill your brace of fish on certain fisheries. Uh, how is the whole? Mentality turning into today is catch and release becoming more prominent. Um, I remember when I was in England, there was a one guy that started catch and release and he was sort of scounded, he was abscounded, or I don't know the word in English, Polish. I know the word, um, but um, he was it was on the river Piddle, I think it was called, and he started a catch and release fishery. And then eventually Orvis started buying up water and making it like on their, their beat on the touch, on the itching, catch and release water. How did you see that transition from catch and release to killing your brace, which you kill your two fish, and then you're off to the pub for your pint of bitters? Uh, you know, what? where is it today? How is How are the Brits evolved in that whole catch and release, kill your brace thing? And how did you do the stomach pump or did you do autopsies? What did you do?
1: those of you who are listening to this uh, podcast and are wondering what a marrow scoop is, back in the sort of Victorian days, the latter years of the 19th century, I would suggest, people used a marrow scoop to extract the marrow from sort of large uh, beef bones and uh, similar. And uh, as as Matt has said, uh, skews took one and used that to extract the contents of a fish's stomach. Um, How many fishermen today go to that extent of of examining the contents of a fish's stomach? I'm not certain, but Probably not as many as ought, ought to, and I think if if more did take the time and uh, trouble to have a look what the fish have eaten, they would actually be quite surprised at what they found, as I think uh, Skews was when he did his uh, first autopsies with a, with a marrow scoop. Um, I mean, one one way of finding out what. Trout feed on, and what nymphs look like, and the different shapes, sizes, and uh, colours is to do some uh, kick sampling of the the river bed with a with a, a fine mesh net and kick the river sample and catch catch what you disturb in the net and then put it on the bank and have a have a look. And I think uh, you know, the first time people see actual Live, living nymphs, they're really quite surprised and they're quite impressed with what they can see.
0: Yeah, um, so um, I think this is an important topic that we don't talk enough about, um, is that we don't spend enough, I'm going to use being a ghillie myself for the last 30 years. um, I do seem ancient at that point, but uh, I am. And, um, you know, the thing is, we, we, we get caught up in our little, uh, we work in our little bubbles. We work in our little paradigms and we don't go out of the boxes very much. And um, we we have a set of flies. We're going to fish this river. I'm going to fish my river that is the tailwater, the Muskegon. I know these flies work at certain times a year. And we, we, we uh, this is a very big caddis River that I'm on otherwise known as sedges where you are um and I want to go back to this catch and release topic which we didn't we didn't fully uh, explore but um so I know that my river has a predominant lots of hydropsyche caddis and I fish a lot of you know hydropsyes during the summertime you know the this this the, 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 the uh, ovipositing females Dries and the pupa, stillborn pupa in the film pupa, emerging pupa, ascending female egg layers. I fish all of that based on the work that Carl Richards did with nymphs and the time I got to fish with him and Dick Popes, who wrote a book on the Caddis Handbook. Uh these were affluent, these were very knowledgeable nymph guys based on the whole La Fontaine Richards uh you know school that they laid down. Um, But then I talked to a biologist friend who fishes for steelhead and he, and he catches trout and he keeps the rainbows. He loves to eat them because they're delicious. He says, and um, he says they're always full of green caddis larva, which here they would be Cuma larvae. larva. And I never use green caddis larva. I never use, um, I don't see that many green caddis on the surface. I think they tend to be more of nighttime emergers or right at, dusk and into the darkness, Um, whereas HydroPsyche are more daytime, seem to be more daytime emergers, Um, so I, I, I don't do much night fishing anymore because I don't have very good night vision, and I just hate being out when I should be drinking fine whiskey. And uh, <laughs> chasing fine ladies. Um, so, you know, it's it just, it's, it's, it's a shame to waste a really good steak on the grill and fine whiskey when you sh- should be doing that, as opposed to fishing should be daytime, as you Brits lovely like to do nine to five fishing, which I really enjoyed when I was there. But uh, the bottom line is, we, I was shocked. And I said, you, you know, you really, you're seeing that many green cumulative psyche, and they're really bright green, like Kelly green. And, he says, yeah, there's stuff with them. And I says, damn it, I can't believe that because I don't see that many in the natural and I turn over a lot of rocks. So what it basically says that what you think the trout are taking usually isn't what they're taking. And the same thing happens on like the tailwater, like the the, the big um, Delaware and New York State where all, you know, Coochie, Nastazi, those guys, you know, it's all mayflies, mayflies, mayflies. But you, you get a trout and somebody happens to kill a trout and they look in the stomach and they're full of sawbugs and you wouldn't oh, yeah, tailwater sawbugs. Yeah, that makes sense, but nobody fishes them. So in essence, we don't spend enough time in examining nature. We were, nymphing became a naturalist uh, gig and we don't do it anymore. We just know that we got the best flies based on what the fly shop told us to do, what, you know, so-and-so wrote in his books, told us to do, but then we go to our stream and we find out the trout are taking completely something different and we're not investigating it. So if you get anything out of this podcast, we brought up the bubble scoop marrow and become a naturalist and get involved in that whole thing. But back to what I was originally saying, catch and release. How is that going in England? Where does it stand? What is the gig? Is it different in the in the? In Hampshire and and the Chalk Streams, is it different based on who owns the stream? Uh, It's based on the North Country. Give us your perspective on how far catch and release has come since the 80s. Because it was pretty just starting to get going in the 80s when I was there. Tell us about
1: it. One aspect of uh, catch and release in this country is the uh, desire to return fish to the river as quickly as they can, and if possible, without handling them. Um, you know, if you can l- get your fish in the net and unhook it and let it recover and then let it swim off without having to handle it, that's the that must be the ultimate. And of course, that means that... Uh, you, you're not going to have a fish there which you can uh, use a stomach pump or a, a marrow spoon to see what it's eaten. And uh, I guess it's probably best for the the fishes inside that you're not sticking a, sticking a pipe or, or something into its stomach.
0: Yeah, so again, where, where it is, you know... How many streams are catch and release now? Would you say it's fifty percent of England, or would you say it's it's common practice now, or as you say, it's? I mean, I I have no idea where it's at. You you should have some idea.
1: I think it's getting ever more popular, um, because you know we've all sort of followed the lee wolf doctrine of a uh, you know handsome fish is it's too good to be caught just the once and uh, a surprising number of uh, people that i know who fish don't actually like eating trout so they don't want to uh, even take one home for the table
0: right right um what is the status of wild trout in england here in the states um we are we have a big push to preserve indigenous trout like you know East Coast Brook trout and and you know the big uh, naturalist movement um that is going on to restore grayling in Michigan, to protect, you know, golden trout, Apache trout, uh different subspecies, little micro species of trout in certain areas in the West, in Arizona, New Mexico. Um Giza trout uh, Giza trout, I think is one. Um uh, you know things of that nature. If I pronounce them wrong, uh, please send me an uh, email because I know I'll get an email if I pronounce something wrong or I say something stupid, which I do quite a bit. That is my natural character to say stupid things. <laughs> um, so you could you could you could hang me in an email. I'm cool with that. Um, but that's all right. Um, so you know, uh, is the indigenous movement really like? I'm sure you have brook trout in some streams there, and the and the naturalists are saying, um, or, or how would you say, the indigenous, I, I'm going to call them indigenous, are probably saying we have to eradicate the brook trout because they're infringing on wild brown trout we've territory. Got, we've
1: got brown trout in this country, and of course uh, brown trout eggs in the uh, 19th century were, were shipped off to uh, uh, Australia What's... and uh, other, what everywhere. were Brits, Everywhere. You Brits, oh, you Brits took your brown yeah. trout everywhere? Yeah. And I love you for that. We have an organisation called the Wild Trout Trust, which is dedicated to uh, developing rivers and streams for the benefit of wild trout. So I think, uh, you know, you're probably going to catch more wild fish in the north of England, where the rivers have been less harmed by man. Um, One of the problems with the Hampshire chalk streams is that nearly all of them, over the many hundreds of years have been developed by man to uh, power watermills and of course that uh, work that's been done on the rivers has upset the uh, sort of natural balance of trout and uh, you know even in the 19th century the uh, famous Houghton Club on the uh, river Test was, was stocking the river and I I just cannot understand why they ever felt they needed to. I mean, I'm sure the river must have been full of wild fish, um, but yes, as I say, they felt they needed to stock it. And we know very well today that uh, putting um, triploid stock fish into uh, trout streams is not good for the health and well-being of the uh, the wild fish and the the fishery of which I'm chairman, you know, our, our, our great aim is to develop it as a, a wild trout fishery um, with only the minimum amount of supplemental uh, stocking. And uh, we, we do have, um, we've, we've got members who uh, are happy to catch wild fish, whether they're six inches long or 16 inches long. But uh, sadly, we have still got a few who would, who think the ultimate is to uh, catch a stock fish, which I find difficult to understand.
0: Right. I think uh, the beauty of a wild fish is is at a premium, and and to see those fish that you're catching, something, and they fight so much differently and fight so much harder.
1: Um, so let's get back to. Oh, gosh, having yes. I mean, to catch a little wild, wild trout, twelve or fourteen inches long, it's like having a piece of uh, spring steel on the end of your line. You know, they dash about with real energy, whereas a stop fish tends to be sort of quite a, a stolid sort of doer, fighter in yeah. comparison. As I say, oh. give me a little wild fish any day.
0: Oh, for sure. And uh, the beauty of them is unbelievable. And uh, uh, yeah, they're absolutely something. So uh, we are doing their best. And, you know, one thing that since, you know, the, the congestion, people don't realize how congested Europe is as a whole. Um, you know, um, when I talked to my friend, when I did my selectivity book, Roman Moser, who helped me out tremendously, you know, Austria is losing their wild brown trout. Germany's losing their wild brown trout. It's just a congestion, the depth of amount of people. Wilds can't really survive in, in, in settled urban environments. is very, very rare. You know, we have a stream in Michigan, in Pennsylvania, the Latort, which runs through the town of Carlisle, which is becoming a quite a big city these days. And the fact that it still has wild brown trout surviving is a testimonial to wild brown trout. And uh and how they are the canary in the coal mine of, if anything's going to survive, it's going to be a wild brown trout, and what they can endure and what kind of habitat degradation. Let's go back into the the, the crux of our subject, traditional nymphing we
1: versus... We up on that point. I mean, we, the Wild Trout Trust has an organization called Trout in the Town, and there's a, a, a well-known... Uh, city Sheffield in the uh, sort of north of England with the River Don flowing through it and in the 19th century and early 20th century it was a great industrial place for knife making in in the main Uh, but work has been done on the uh, river there over the last uh, several years and people fish for trout in the middle of the town and uh, catch nice fish so you know, all is not lost if a if a trout stream does flow through a an industrial center or a previous industrial center.
0: Yeah, and that's the cool thing um that I liked about England is uh when I was in when I was in Stockbridge, the brown trout sitting right underneath the street gutters and through the carriers that ran through the town, uh people were walking around feeding monsters. Feeding <laughs> feeding these monsters bread and, and uh, parts of their sandwiches. And uh, it was quite an interesting to see the brown trout living under people's windows as the stream went by the house. And uh, yeah, it was, it was quite interesting. And you know, that revival is going on. It's going on all throughout the world. Um, I know in Edinburgh uh, and in Scotland, they had a stream that came through the town and they're starting to catch wild brown trout. So the trout in the city is, is working and it's just takes time and it needs to, uh, you need to find out what the the, the the dividing factor, what are the discriminating factors, what are the points, the factors that uh, make the trout stream survive and the ones that are degrading it. And usually it comes down to one or two critical things. And if you could solve those, you end up uh, having a wild fishery in the downtown of your, in, in downtown of your little city. Let's get back to your Perspective on nymphing. Um, so, in my essence, in my uh, breaking this whole below the meniscus series down, we're talking about you're you're representing traditional nymphing in this old scores use, use Sawyer esque thing. Uh, then there's traditional nymphing. There's Euro nymphing. There's indicator nymphing. How would you in in your writings? How did you break apart everything? And how do you see the the differing the discrimination factors that breaks down each of these things. If somebody says that's the kind of nymphing that they do, what is your terms for these, this subject?
1: Perhaps not answering your question directly, I was quite encouraged to read recently one uh, competition uh, fly fisherman saying that there is actually a place in competition fishing for traditional upstream nymphing. You know, they, they, they've realised that uh, as old-fashioned as a technique might appear, it does still work and uh, catch fish. And I suppose... Uh, A lot of my sort of fishing career has been based on uh, reading books, you know, by uh, Skews, Sawyer, Oliver Kleiss and uh, so on. And uh, I I felt that that was a sort of the, the, the proper way to... Fish nymphs, whereas as I said earlier, you know the, all the the various forms that of continental nymphing, you know Czech nymphing, Polish nymphing, etc., etc., were 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 developed with the one aim of of catching as many fish as possible. And to me, that is a complete antithesis of of what f- fly fishing is is all about. I mean, you know, fly fishing is. Pitting your 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 wits against a fish, and ideally finding a a feeding fish, and casting your fly to it, so it approaches the fish in a position where the fish is expecting to uh, see an item of food, and if it likes what it's what it sees, it it will take it. And I think picking up an earlier comment about when you're examining the stomach contents of fish, you know you've find all sorts of odds and ends including cigarette ends I think that demonstrates if a if a fish sees something that it identifies as food in in a place where it's expecting to see some uh, a food item it will probably go for it
0: yeah um so do you think going back to what I said um did you think that? There was a big schism between the traditional nymphing and the euro nymphing. How do you, how do you see the two evolving today? Do, do you think a euro is ever going to go back to traditional nymphing? How do you, how do you see it happening in in UK?
1: I suppose in 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 some respects, uh, traditional nymphing is not developing in the same way that uh, euro nymphing is. But you know, we've got. Uh, a much much bigger range of uh, nymphal patterns to to choose from. Uh, we've got better leaders and uh, tippet materials, which are making good nymph fishing easier. You know, fine fine tippets sink quickly, so you can perhaps fish. Slightly less heavily weighted fish, and and know that they're going to sink quickly to the uh, required depth. And uh, you know, fishing your 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 nymph at the right depth is 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 very important, as is casting accurately. Because as I've said, if you know, sometimes you can see a fish that's moving from side to side as it's taking nymphs, and you can you can cast, and if your fly sort of gets carried to one side by a, 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 a current that you perhaps haven't seen, you know, hungry fish will come and move maybe a couple of feet to one side to take your nymph, where on other occasions there will be fish that you've almost got to hit them on the nose uh, before they'll they'll open their mouth and, and swallow your fly. So, you know, accurate casting is 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 key to uh, successful nymph fishing. Yeah, and
0: um, we're going to get into some of the comments and thoughts of, you know, Sawyers and Skews uh, on that subject. Well, uh, you know, the dynamics we discussed in the wet fly swing was a fixed line broadside sweep to trigger impulse to take the fly is usually in that broadside as it's sweeping down and across that trigger that happened uh, probably that first trigger that happened was in macedonia when the romans were watching the locals fix have a fixed piece of twine or or horsehair got on on a long branch and sapling and they made the red fly and they cast it in the fast flowing rivers of macedonia and that broadside sweep when by the trout, the trout was triggered into taking it, grabbing something that's moving away from it. The physics and dynamics of nymphing is a dead drift, more in a traditional sense, casting upstream and upstream and across and upstream and down and watching the trout move to the left or right. Um, so, you know, and wet fly, before there was mucilin and all the things that made a fly floating or the feathers that were built together to make it float, fly sunk. So the dangle with burners and her long rods on the river ver and you know the dangled flies the sunken fly was the way to fish so vision of the fly degree of need for accuracy and imitation or not where do we go with the whole thing of um uh, color and we're gonna get into color because i think a color is a big part you see what differentiates one fly from the other is color And this fly's blue, this one's green, this one's red, this one's orange, this one has this material. We mess around with colors and and textures so much, which leads us to color and tone and what people have said. Um, And, you know, vision of trout. Vision of trout on a chalk stream must be so much better because there's no turbidity to the water, Uh, viscosity. They could see everything at a slow pace. Whereas in a mountain stream, they seem to have to grab it and take it. And we know that in human nature and in animal world, uh, animals that have the best visions are the most perceptive hunters like eagles or owls or anything like that. And we know that vision can be enhanced. Uh, I know myself that I, I have not been wearing glasses for the last five years when I'm typing at the computer and doing anything. And prior to that, I was glued to my glasses. I'm going to say eight years now, I'm not wearing, six years, I'm not wearing glasses. And my vision is just as sharp when I was wearing glasses. And that seems bizarre, but I think I've trained my eye to work better. And one thing that I, I realized in my selectivity book, when I was talking about a little mountain stream in the Catoctin Mountains, Big Hunting Creek, there were wild brown trout in that stream and that water was moving at a high clip. The gradient was fierce. I mean, you were literally rappelling up a side of a mountain to fish a creek that was cascading from one pool to another pool. And I talked about their vision that brown trout must have really good supervision or any brook trout or rainbow trout or whatever in a cascading stream to see something and intercept it. And they have to be so much more quicker, which going back to nymphing in a chalk stream, Spring Creek, um... Sawyer talks about a lazy eye, and a trout has a lazy eye, and some brown, big brown trout moves slowly to take the fly, and they and they take it in and everything's slow motion. So the chalk stream must make lazy brown trout. Whereas on a mountain cascading north country stream or the mountain streams on the east coast here, the trout are much quicker to grab the fly. How do you how do you uh in your experience sum up um Trout vision and how do you uh how do you put it where where was your revelations on anything about trout vision um cuz i i know skews and everybody had their own theories how do you view it terry
1: well, you you're absolutely right about uh, north country fish and any any fish in the uh, fast flowing turbulent water they've got to make up their minds quickly and if they get if they if they see something that they want to eat they've got to go and grab it before it disappears whereas chalk stream fish can be much more leisurely and uh, it's, it's it's rather the same as when you when you're fishing for chalk stream trout, uh, they they won't always take your nymph upstream from them. You know, some fish will turn around and follow it downstream, and then then take it. Um, you know, they think, "Gosh, I think I might have let an item of food go by. I better get after it and and grab it." Yeah. Um, uh, so, how? The- go ahead. No, I was going to say how trout uh fish's vision has developed and so on. I don't really know enough about it to be able to give you a sensible answer.
0: Yeah, and I think no one really does. I think we just come up with ideas on, on it and we try to put our ideas, our theories into uh, what we observe. And that's the beauty of what we do as fly fishers. We do a lot of theoretical stuff and we do a lot of observation where other people Gear fishermen just throw the damn thing out and sort of. But gear fishing is becoming a high t- thing now. Bass fishermen are becoming very scientific. So all you bass masters out there, uh, you're getting just as scientific as us, crazed fly fishermen are. Um, but you know, I I put a I wrote a comment in my selectivity quote, and we're and I'm going to be interesting to hear what you say in your books, and we're going to talk about your books. But I said. And one thing, when I think I was talking about these Catoctin fish, I was saying, so it is my opinion, uh, a trout eventually perfects and enhances its vision over time, even though the freestone trout is perceived as dumb and opportunistic, which is the common, uh, here's a here's my, you know, quote about dumb and opportunistic, which most people perceive that a mountain fish is, has to grab it, so he'll take anything. So let's go fish for a bunch of brook trout, which is the complete opposite, because I believe and going back to my quote, I believe a freestone trout vision is superior to a gentle flowing spring creek and tailwater trout. I realize that I am making a bold statement here that I will, of course, be of much controversy. Controversy, as they say in your country. Uh, I, I put that straight. Uh, however, in the Grand scheme of selectivity to optic enhancements, freestone trout have a much tougher road to survival and predation, hence, greater chance for error and mistakes that can be costly. Since the Spring Creek or Tailwind Trout have a relatively relaxed environment uh, to inspect its food and prey, it's the great luxury of being selective. Thus, may be in fact the lazy, especially a very large Spring Creek trout that Frank Sawyer mentioned, which were easy to catch on the River Avon in, English, in England, due to the optic laziness of its vision, may be habituated to certain food forms that trust so easily, like scud, sawbugs, sculpins, etc., plus it often lives in dark seclusion where light is void. I have seen the darkness unnatural scud and sawbug patterns fool very selective Spring Creek trout. Downright embarrassing, I might add, for these aristocratic, aristocratic cratic fussy feeders. If the imitation was close enough, they ate it. And that's what Sawyer observed a lot, um, and depth, you know, one thing about depth, and, and most of our nymphing trout are in depth, and depth translates into 360-degree vision for trout in a lot of respects. So it's sort of a three-dimensional way they could see the bottom, the top, sort of the sides, shape, segmentation, colors are all important, whereas the dry fly is distorted. And you look at the surface and what Marinero had in his Felix the Tank, uh, you know, you see a, you see a, through refraction, you don't see much of it. You just probably see the body sunken through the meniscus and you see the hackles. But down there, that fish could see everything about a nymph. And, you know, does color, what differentiates everything is color, how we perceive color. And now we know color is perceived differently by trial with UV light. And we've, you know, there's so many good books have been written about what a fish sees with its cones and rods, etc., How big has color played a role in your nymphing, Terry? And does it play a big role in English fishing? Um, you know, you talk about pale wateries and iron blues and, you know, stuff like that. Where, where did you see color and its importance in your nymphing?
1: Well, different colored flies certainly uh, play a big part in still water fishing for stock rainbow trout, but uh, I I tend to uh, like to fish basic buggy looking nymphs. There's something like a gold ribbed hare's ear nymph, Um, not a terribly... uh, Specific representation, um, but as they say, something that looks nice and buggy and could uh, represent all sorts of things and uh, colors well, hair's ear dubbing and similar colors, you know, sort of grays and browns, and maybe a little bit of green as well. Um, If I'm going to fish. Nymphs with a with a bead head. I tend to fish um, uh, just plain uh, grey or or black um, beads. I mean, I do occasionally fish with a with a with a, a, a gold a gold head, but uh, you know, particularly on a summer's day, if there's a lot of lot of sun on the water, that you know you can get an awful shine off the off a gold bead head, which sometimes will attract a fish to your fly, and other times it'll it'll terrify fish. So, as I say, I think um, I'm not too worried about uh, the need for fishing nymphs of lots of different colours.
0: Yeah, and we're going to get into your your views on Skews and Sawyer and what they did, and you know. As Sawyer uh, really simplified the nymph world pretty, pretty amazingly uh, tight, and uh, his nymph today is still the most popular nymph ever fished and will be, I think. But back to color a little bit, I just want to talk about, excuse me, what Datis Proper said. Uh, he wrote a beautiful book, What the Trout Said. And um, I knew Datis uh, in Washington, D.C. when I was there in the hotel business back in the 80s, he was part of the National Capital chapter of Trout Unlimited. I got to fish with him on the yellow breeches. Um, and he was a big friend of Marineros that sort of introduced me a little bit to him. Um, and you know, he said, and he was very much on the what Marineros said about color. Um, and 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 I quote Datis in his book, uh, he says color is also difficult to relate carefully to trout. Um, as you know, in his book, he was interviewing a trout, and the fictitious trout was telling him, "No, you guys are making too much fuss about color. I don't pay attention." To it. So it was a great book. I- I'm just go- I'm going back to what he was doing in that book. But back to his comments: there are vast uncertainties. Much of the time, color may matter not at all. Most of the time, seems to be at least important feature. The least important feature of imitation, our uh, data says despite the usual tacit assumption to the contrary. But some of the time, color does matter. Once the trout told me this, as he s- says to his fictitious trout, I had to take a look at the subject. Angling literature is good in some areas, but in color, what are we have is amounts to little more than folklore. So pro- proper's firm opinion, along with the fictitious trout, both say that color patterns very little, matters very little. He says at least it is the least impact uh it has had least impact under low light conditions fly components held above and outside the mirror like a foam high vis top to an ant etc and very sparse components of the fly excellent trial vision work has been done um so anyways he's saying that it's pretty much folklore um it, it it's the light conditions that enhance color or subdue color Uh, and, uh, so on that note of color, we're going to basically, uh, take our break and, uh, we're going to be back. Uh, but we do know, um, that, you know, Sosin and Clark in their book in 73 through the fish's eye really got into color. So I would, I would highly suggest reading some of those great books that have come out on UV light and how the fish sees it, but, uh, um, we're going to take a break. Go ahead, Terry.
1: Before you do, I must tell you a little story. Some years ago, I read that grayling like pink flies. And I went uh, grayling fishing one autumn on the Derwent at uh, Chatsworth in Derbyshire. And I fished a pink F fly with great success. Whether it's because I put the fly in the right place or whether it was the pink, I don't know. But uh, pink flies catch grayling.
0: Yeah. Pink flies catch steelhead rainbows here. Um, It's interesting. Yeah. You know, and, um, and of course, you said that red is the trigger color. So if you look at all the flies tied in the UK today for still waters, uh, et cetera, et cetera, they all have a red tag to them. So red, 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 pink, pink for grayling. So, yeah. Anyways, we are going to take a break. We are with Terry Lawton discussing traditional nymphing and the evolution of nymphing uh, from the UK. And uh, we are going to take a break and we will be right back. Able Reels have been the pinnacle of real technology for for decades now. Since Steve Abel, aerospace engineer, started the company in California, their technology and their manufacturing, the drag systems, are simply impeccable. Um, They work to perfection, and everything they do is just a piece of art, including their art design on their real systems. Uh, They're beautiful artists that they have in these series of all the different trout, salmon, steelhead, saltwater fish. Uh, utilizing technology with beauty and incorporating designs by Derek DeYoung, Larco, Underwood, other people are simply the state of the art. What's so cool is when you take a picture of a fish like I often do with Atlantic salmon and brown trout and hold my reels up against them, it's just beauty in the hand and beauty in the fish uh, and it just totally relates to the whole experience of why we fly fish and why we love what we're doing. Um, So please look at Able Reels next time you're looking at a large Arbor Reel and, and look at the difference and look at the quality, the workmanship, another USA made company that gives each reel a hand touch and their boutique made reels, especially the paintings. If you opt for the designs, which can be pricey, but if you're looking for that special gift for someone, or you're trying to treat yourself, Able Reels are the way to go. Contact Jeff Patterson and Able and you will never be disappointed in an Able product. I've had an emotional attachment to Orvis since I was a little boy growing up in the Niagara Frontier with my paper route and with my hard-earned money. I saved up my money to buy one of the first Orvis graphite rods that came out. To this day and over the decades, I still collect their Orvis graphite rods like the Trico, the Spring Creek, the Far and Fine, the Beaver, and I still fish them. I was an Orvis pro for 20 years in my guiding career that I still guide today. And during that time, they asked me to write a book for Orvis called The Orvis Pocket Guide to Great Lake Salmon and Steelhead. It's an amazing rod, the new Helios, and when they first sent me the blanks, For the Helios, I asked them, where are they going with this rod and what do you want to do with it? And they basically said to build the finest graphite rod that is made, and they sure did. Today's Helios 3, the D is the faster tip flex rod, and the F version is the more moderate rod, the mid flex. If you want the finest fly rod to be casted today, get the Helios 3. I use it every day, and I will continue to use it. I can't say enough superlatives about a company like Patagonia. Their designs, their style, their function, their quality, everything they do is amazing for the mountain climber, for the skier, for the surfer, for the fly fisher. I've been a Patagonia pro for over 30 years and I've lived their clothing lifestyle. Practically every piece of clothing I have is Patagonia. My whole family has absorbed their lifestyle and my son, Peter, who is so enamored with the Patagonia lifestyle worked in their Patagonia corporate store in Washington DC Yvonne Chouinard is an avid spaycaster, caster an Atlantic salmon uh aficionado steelheader he started and pioneered a Tenkara movement here in in the North America and he embodies the company and he's given so much of this company to the earth and to the public when you buy Patagonia you give back to the planet and this summer, I've been really enjoying their lightweight waders in this hot weather we've had. And I warned their waders from Iceland to Tierra del Fuego. Please give back to the earth, buy Patagonia, and you will never, ever for- forget the quality of this product. We are back and we are talking to Terry Lawton in Norfolk, Norfolk, England, uh, on uh, the traditional nymphing perspective, um, dating back to uh, to the first Bibles on nymphing that were written by Skews and Sawyer and, and all the others. And, um, you know, you're we talking about color and, and maybe investigating more of what the trout sees on your stream and your river. Uh, we don't do enough of that. Um, but, you know, a lot of the, the, the real godfather, the father, the, the the holy father of nymphing was was uh, G.E.M. Skews. And um, uh, Terry's going to talk a little bit about him. But, you know, in 1921, he produced an amazing book, uh, which is the Bible um, of nymphing, uh, the way of the trout with the fly. And then, of course, his minor tactics for chalk stream trout. Um, but you know, it was, for him, it was all about the head game it was about, you know, summing up the the pursuit, the chase, you know, finding out, investigating what the trout was eating. And I think one of the greatest quotes that he did was, um, was, uh, here in this quote that I'm going to talk to you about. Um, he says, why is the, why does the trout take the natural fly undoubtedly as the contents of his stomach prove as food? Why does he take the artificial fly? In my opinion, in the vast majority of cases, because it's supposes to be his food. On occasion, the motive may be curiosity, jealousy, pugnacity, or sheer excess of high spirits. But if I did not believe that the trout took the artificial um, fly not only as food, but as food of the kind of which he is feeding, the real interest of trout fishing would be gone, so far as I'm concerned. That is the reason why, for me, trout fishing on chalk streams transcends in an interest to any other kind of trout fishing. For on streams where the fly is comparatively scarce, trout are apt to take any kind of insect that may be on the on the menu, and are not to be taken fiercely on patterns which do not represent the fly on the water. But chalk streams are rich in insect food. The duns come out. Um, in in droves and the fish show a discriminating determination to take only one pattern at a time which coincides me uh, convinces me that they mean to have nothing which does not satisfy them as being that on which they are feeding even on chalk streams there are occasions when there are exceptions to the rule but in my experience stretching over 35 years these occasions are few so he was into the school of the exact naturalist um and you know it was that finding that clue cracking that code that made SKUs, that uh, incredible mind um where you know in in your opinion who was what wh- how did you talk about skews and and um in in your book nymph fishing and perspective and all that how holy was this man, G-E-M-Skew's, this solicitor? This could have been called a pure a purist in the fact that he separated from Halford. How how big is it in England? How many, is Skew's considered the the godfather or how did that whole thing, is it perceived today? Give me your whole take on it. It's all your, the floor is yours, Sir, uh, sir Terry Lott
1: on Skew's. Uh, I think it's interesting that Skews uh, was a member of a syndicate on the uh, River Itch in Hampshire where the rule for the members of that syndicate was dry-fly only. Skews was a solicitor in London and uh, as such I think he should have been only too aware of the syndicate's rules and how they should be interpreted And when he started to fish what today we would call emergers, flies fished in the surface film, I believe that he was pushing the dry fly only rule to its limit. So when he went further and started to fish his flies below the surface, he was, in my opinion, guilty of breaking the rules. And in the end, he was asked to give up his rod in the syndicate much to his chagrin, as he had spent a very happy lifetime fishing the itch in which he loved. And the other thing that interests me about skews and the development of nymph fishing was he was supposed to have been extremely well-read and he admitted that you know he spent an awful lot of time in the British Library, reading books and papers and so on. But there was quite a degree of ignorance in his knowledge. Um, the fact that fish fed on nymphs uh, had been known about since the uh, the 17th century, yet. Yeah. That knowledge seems to have um, elu- eluded him, and and it wasn't until one day when he was fishing the, the, the itch in at, at the time that they were cutting the weed. It's perhaps worth pointing out that weed growth in the chalk streams can be prolific and uh, needs an awful lot of cutting, and there was a big raft of, of weed caught up against the bank. And uh, he he could see a fish that was going round feeding on what we now know were nymphs uh, that were escaping from that uh, cut weed, um, which is really where it all all started. But um, it, 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 even from that beginning, it took him quite a long time to uh, fully appreciate what was what was going on.
0: Yeah. Uh, do you, do you think, um, is he like in our country, what we have today, we have a lot of, uh, you know, we have YouTube fishermen, we have people that want something bigger, better, faster, more. Now, um, we, we, we tend not to spend too much time. I I would say right now, if you asked nine out of 10 fly fishermen today in in the United States who GM skews were, I would say they wouldn't have no idea. um, if you ask them who Taylor Swift is, they would know right off the bat. Uh, if you ask them who uh, <laughs> Mahomes is, uh, they would know right away. Um, you know, so. But fly fishing today is not about history. It's not about the process, uh, and you know, especially younger generations, they want bigger, better, faster, more. Now that's why they got into Euro NIVing. So some of the comments on social media, were when we did the wet fly series, we got tons, tons. I've never thought that the wet fly would bring about so much interest in fishermen. Uh, And so many guys said, hey, I just love to take a team of wets and swing them. And it's the most relaxing way to fish and it's enjoyable way to fish. And uh, one gentleman, I think Mr. Base Shore, um, uh, came in and said, um, I wish these kids these days, you know, kids under 35, um, would would pick up some wet flies and learn the tradition and and so it, it's there's a battle going on between knowing who GM skews is and know who GM skews is and, and most people say who gives a grip I know who you know I know who the rock stars of today are that go to all the shows and the rock stars of today but everything came from the past and what if anything Hollowed Waters is trying to do is educate people uh, enlighten I don't think educate uh, educate is one thing, but enlighten their journey. So to me and to skews uh, he said his journey was enlightened knowing that he's imitating a fly. His fly is imitating what the trout is perceiving to be food. And I'm going to crack that code. And if I don't use that right fly, I'm not going to catch that trout. And that's where the chase and the, and the the allure of what we do is man oh, that trout's really kicking my ass today on the surface. He's, not, he's giving me the finger. He's refusing everything. You go to the Delaware, West Branch of the Delaware. You go to Henry's Fork. You go to the Missouri. Uh, you're going to get some fish that kick your butt, and they're not taking what you're giving them, whether it's a nymph or a dry fly. Uh, and cracking that code for for skews, and it is for me, and it is probably for Terry also, I would assume, and you could, you could clarify that, if I'm wrong, but cracking that code is what this whole crazy mind cognito ergo sum, I think, therefore I fly fish podcast is all about. And I'm sort of like singing my own Bible here, but it really is something that we don't pay enough attention to today. And so when these comments came in on the wet fly podcast, the, a, a lot of comments came in from 30 somethings and 20 somethings and uh, said, Hey, see this bamboo rod? See this old, uh, This old hardy reel. uh, I fish wet flies all the time. So don't just judge all millennials and Gen Z, Gen X's as being, you know, bigger, better, faster, more now type people. There's a lot of traditional guys out there. And the more they fish spring creeks, the more they go into the history, the more they find out that your journey can be enlightened by broadening horizons and learning all these things that just enhances what you do. And you could take variations and the term variation. A variant means to vary on something that was founded. And uh, so the, the beauty of what we're talking about today is um, it's good to explore all this stuff. And it's good to understand the thought process behind this stuff because it makes you uh, makes you more enlightened into what you do. But, you know, the, back to this color thing, uh, we, we constantly talk about it and, and Skews talked about it and he said uh, in um, you know he said can it be doubted that if the fly dresser knew exactly the degree of the trout sensitivity sensitiveness to different colors and also knew the combinations of color producing any particular shade for the trout he would have gone a very long way towards solving the, the secrets of fatally successful trout fly dressings and that's one thing that he says is our biggest problem and then he said when he when he talks of his nymphs that he tied i have I quote again, I have tied some nymphs of appropriate color of body and hackles with a single turn of, of the tiniest blue hackle of the Merlin. This enabled me to get two or three excellent trout, which were taking blue wing olives and nymphs greedily under the opposite bank, in which, or rather the first of fish, like their predecessors, refused to respond to a floating imitation. The body was a mixture of medium olive seal fur and bear's hair close to the skin, tied with primrose silk, the whisk being soft and soft, short and soft from the spade-shaped feather found on the shoulder of a blue dun cock. So this is how how detailed he was about making sure exact color. And then, you know, he he also liked red. And he also said, um, I quote him, it is, I think, beyond dispute that trot are extremely sensitive to red and are greatly attracted by it. Witness the value of a red tag to a fly living as so many do among surroundings of green weeds. So, you know, we talked about all the things, that the particulars of of skews and how in-depth he was into these little tiny observations. Um, And then we come across a guy like Sawyer. Um, And I'm going to have you give us your whole introduction to Frank Sawyer, um, but to a guy that took the complexity of of what skews did and simplified it because he was a ghillie and I'm a ghillie. And what you try to do as a ghillie is you try to simplify. You have to have bring order to your life or you'd lose your mind in order to your life for a ghillie or a guy today is I got, this is my guide box. I know these 10 flies are going to work and I'm going to stick with these 10 flies because these 10 flies are my 10 commandments. And if I, I can't be distorted. I can't have too much cognitive dissonance going on in my mind. I can't be saying, oh, try this or try that or try this or try I have order in my life. I know I want my boat to be, my drift boat to be at this spot. At 1 o'clock, I know I have lunch at 30. I have to be here for, at 2 o'clock because there's a hatch going on or th- I have to be there. Your life is order. And when, when chaos comes into your life, you get all thrown apart. And that's the life of a guide. I have to get up at this time. I have to pack my lunches. I have to do this. And anything that distorts that order distorts your understanding of everything. And um, then you, that was sort of, Skews was bringing order by exactness and detail. And then a guy, a gilly, who's pressed for time, um, comes along like Sawyer. And how do you see the difference between Skews and Sawyer uh, in your writings and your books? How did you go about differentiating the two, Terry?
1: Well, Skews was trying to uh, try and develop uh, quite realistic imitation nymphs, you know, with uh, the head hackles to represent the legs and. uh, um, tails and so on, whereas I think uh, Sawyer was looking for the sort of key characteristics of an of a nymph, which he wanted to uh, represent. And uh, for for, for Sawyer, the um, thorax was one of the uh, the key points, which is very noticeable on on his uh, pheasant tail nymph. And then, of course, you've got uh, Oliver Kite, who uh, fished the same river and at the same time as, uh, as Sawyer did, who found that he was catching fish on nymphs that were get, getting chewed up. I mean, I think we've all caught fish on well, well-worn, well well-used flies over over the years, but he... He took it to an extreme with his uh, so-called bear hook nymph, which was a, a, a hook with a, a few turns of fine copper wire to uh, represent the thorax. And I think why he was successful with fishing with such a basic fly was that he had it had confidence in it. He knew how and where to land the fly on the water. And as I say, he was confident that he would catch fish.
0: Yeah, and so do you see a big difference? I mean, where did you? How did you view Sawyer? Did you view him as a really uh generalist versus Skews, or give us more? Give us more. Your more insight into Sawyer.
1: I mean, I, I think another point worth making is that there's a surprising number of uh, fly fishermen today who don't fish nymphs and uh, never tried because they think it's it's too hard. Um, it, it certainly can be challenging, but surely that's half the fun of it. Yeah. Um-
0: the Avon, so it was the Avon School versus the Itchin School for me. So the Itchin School was skews, was um, you know, the very detailed, very pragmatic, very um looking at everything that's coming down the pike, whether it's color, whether it's this one turn of a of a blue wisp of Merlin, you know, this this kind of stuff. Uh, and then you get Sawyer, um, who was a ghillie, he was slow and steady. He walked the banks of the river Avon. Um, he was always talking na- nature and the approach of a heron, and the approach of this. Um, uh, and you know, it was this um, uh, something that that more of what I see from Skews was was the ballroom talk. Was the Houghton Club? Have you ever been to the Houghton Club, uh, Terry?
1: I haven't. No. One of these days, maybe. Have you um, been to the Grosvenor Hotel? The, the other great talker of that period was um, Halford. and uh, his promotion of the uh, of the up uh, the upstream dry fly and the dry fly only code. You know, with the meetings he used to hold at uh, a hotel in uh, Winchester. The Grosvenor. I could, I could see Halford today having a. A YouTube channel and uh, being a, a great angling media influencer.
0: Yeah, have you been to the Grosvenor Hotel in in Stockbridge?
1: I've seen it, and, yeah. and I've seen all those monster trout swimming in the little gullies and things running along the uh, the, the high street that you mentioned earlier.
0: Yeah, it's uh, quite the place. I had a actually, I had a good dinner there. It was. Um, I stayed at a place called the the, um, the Greyhound Pub um, and uh, the Greyhound uh, Hotel. It was a little bed and bro- it was a little inn and the Greyhound Inn. And a guy by the name of Andy McDowell McDonald McDowell, I can't remember his name, um, ran the place. And he was uh, I'll never forget. I went into the Greyhound and that day we were staying there It was a great place, a very chummy atmosphere, nice pub where everybody was drinking and talking about their day on the river. And it was on the river test, and he had a little beat there. Um, and I walked into the kitchen, and I was a, I was a food and beverage director. I was a chef, food and beverage director, and I was a culinarian. And I walked into the kitchen, and he was one of the first restaurants, in England to be featuring pizzas, especially in Hampshire. And pizzas were kind of, you know, you get them in, in Italy. Pizzas were not very big in, in Europe yet, outside of, of course, Italy and Naples and et cetera. And uh he was making he had a table where all the pizzas were being laid out and the dough were being laid out. And on the table right next to that, he was uh he was he was loading maggots, white maggot worms for sea trout fishermen and brown trout fishermen uh, at the Christchurch pool. And he was selling them as bait. And he would literally go from from the maggot table to putting ingredients. <laughs> the pizza and go back to the maggot table. I'm like, oh my god, man, like, aren't you worried about cross contamination? Uh, it was something really funny back in the day. And he's like, I know, I wash, you know, that's all nature. You know, I wash my hands and it's it's not a big deal. Um, but it was it was an interesting place in the fact that um you had this Houghton Club where you had royals like Prince Charles had to fish there as because he he knew a member of parliament that would allow him to fish there. And, uh, you know, things of that nature, the the, cat, the class system was so big uh, in England. And it still is today, I think, not as much because you're a pretty, pretty democratic country. But this class system of the Houghton Club and Grosvenor Hotel and and skews on the itching and Halford on the test with his dry flies. And then you got this guy, Sawyer, who comes along who who's sort of like a rogue dude he's sort of like the new that i called him in my book the, the first rock and roll rock star of fly fishing that he started becoming radical he started tying nymphs that really didn't look like much but in the end have become the most famous nymphs of all time um, and his approach um you know and he says in his book nymphs and the trout he says from time to time Many other patterns have been described which represent the natural creatures from the human point of view. Exquisite without doubt, many of them are, but are to the fish not human, which has to decide if they are attractive. So he's basically advocating that the fish is going to decide what's attractive, not the human eye, which was more skews. And so perhaps I look at things, he says, from a somewhat different angle. Through the years, the fish have been the judge of my artificials. I have constructed and reasonings reasoning things out I have come to the conclusion that the view of the fish must be have primary consideration so he was basically giving the finger to skews in his little turn of a Merlin here and there which just is so perfectly snobby in the old itching Hampshire sense and Sawyer is saying hey let the fish decide and I'm going to tie flies that hey, I could tie a crank out pretty quickly um, and that the fish take uh, and Sawyer was also an advocate for the slow and steady approach. When I am nymphing spring creeks, you must approach each part of the water in microcosm, dividing each up river into small beats. Was he saying? And uh, he also, you know, he was a naturalist. He trimmed the weed growth. He did all the things that a gilly does: get rid of pike, etc. But um, you know, this whole thing, um, you know, you wrote a great piece uh, for for hollowed waters. Um, for the for the for the magazine called Nymph Fishing as it was used to be the never the Nether Avon style and uh, tell us about that piece you wrote and and give us a little more insight go talk it up Terry
1: well the Nether, Nether Avon style was very much all about standing watching what was going on in the river as we've said earlier lovely clear water so everything could be seen and. Uh, waiting till a, a feeding fish a fish feeding on nymphs could be identified uh, within casting range and then casting to to that fish you know it was very much about uh, targeting a fish rather than um, fishing the water
0: yes so um, you know Sawyer, of course, came with the uh, with the um, with the pheasant tail nymph, the greatest creation of all. Uh, you know, uh, the, this pheasant tail nymph was nothing but, you know, uh, red pheasant. You guys have a, a big population of red pheasants there, um, uh, Hungarian. I think it's 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 the red pheasant is is an indigenous red pheasant to England, or is it? An, it's obviously an import from China. Correct.
1: Uh, As an an import, Um, there obviously are wild pheasants that breed in this country, but uh, a lot of the uh, shoots, particularly the the big shoots, do uh, rear a lot of pheasants and uh, release them. You're you're stocking a shoot with uh, pheasants in the same way as you stock a still water with stock trout. And again, I think it's interesting that more and more shoots are actually reducing the amount, the numbers of fish, sorry, the numbers of pheasants that they stock and trying to convert to uh, wild pheasant shoots in the same way as we're interested in wild fish fishing.
0: Yeah. um, And, you know, he came up with this wonderful, going back to this, back to your, your, the the Nether Avon style. you know, you this is I'm going to I'm going to read your quote from this article and uh, you should be reading this to me, but I'm going to read your own quotes from it. Um, here you write one of the greatest mysteries of the development of nymph fishing in England in what was known at this time as the Nether Avon style was the was the falling out of the two main pro- protagonists, Frank Sawyer and Major Oliver Kite. So you, you cite this was this, this falling out of the two major protagonists. Tell us about this, this Major Kite, and, and most people do not even know of Major Oliver Kite. Tell us more
1: about him. Well, one of the problems was that uh, they lived almost opposite each other, and Oliver Kite was uh, making television programs, many of which you can uh, find on YouTube and so you still see today, um, and he was Proving to be quite successful at it. And uh, the theory is that he bought himself a Jaguar car, um, which it was parked on the street outside his, his house. And Frank Sawyer and his wife could uh, see this car. And I think there was a certain uh, degree of jealousy there that, you know, Kite was making money out of his fishing that uh, I think perhaps Sawyer felt that he. He shouldn't, or who you knows? He, he Sawyer certainly wasn't, because he, he was employed as a river keeper by the uh, military angling club on the uh, the Avon. Um, it's was, it was unfortunate, I think, that they they did have have this uh, falling out, because for many years they they collaborated and worked together and were seemingly good friends and. And I think another aspect of it was that uh, Sawyer felt that uh, Kite had been uh, had befriended him to learn all that he could about nymph fishing, so he could write it in in a book and uh, profit from that.
0: Yeah, and uh, you know, uh, you also talk about. Um... Well, you know, he's he his services, the sir dry fly fishing associate particular brigadier general H. E. Carey. Carey knew the upper Avon for much of his life. Um, as I wrote in my new book, Nymph Fishing with Perspective, Carey was to be significant influence in Frank Sawyer's life as it was. I'm mean, I'm quoting directly out of your book, um, Terry, uh, influence in Frank Sawyer's life as it was he who introduced him to nymph fishing in nineteen twenty eight. This is the date in the introduction of the second edition of nymphs and, Trout, nymphs and the Trout by Sawyer, when he had just become the keeper of the Officers Fishing Association. The general had been instrumental in having the rules of the association change to allow upstream nymph fishing. On this occasion, Carey was after Grayling, but he was never a particularly successful nymph fisherman. Sawyer saw that Grayling could be attracted to his nymphs when fished deep. Perhaps the penny never dropped for Carey, as Sawyer wrote. Once the penny drops, so to speak, nymph fishing becomes the most artistic way by which fish can be caught, or so I think. And for Sawyer, the utmost enjoyment of nymph fishing can be obtained in July and August, when chalk streams will be gin clear and the surface unruffled by winds. Ideally, the angler will cast to a sighted feeding fish and not cast at random, as would a dry fly purist will cast only to a rising fish. So. This relationship was really big. Um, and you know, you also go on to say both Frank Sawyer and Oliver Kite practiced nymph fishing in what was known as this never even style. But for Sawyer, the ultimate and ultimate utmost enjoyment of nymph fishing can be attained in July. And Kite's catch records show that, you know, most of the fish during that time were, you know, on dry flies. So you had a bit of this falling out, the this, this bit of a schism on and on and on. And then you go into talking about the rod designs that Sawyer did fished with, uh, you know, Howard Marshall wrote the ref- uh, in Reflections on the River that Sawyer fished with an eight foot, 10 inch French rod, which was in his name inscribed on it. The rod has been designed by Charles Ritz, who presented it to him. Apparently it was a Pison and Michelle, uh, you know, all this relationships that had, um, how did you see that relationship between Charles Ritz, the hotelier and Sawyer uh, play out? What What was your take on that whole thing?
1: It was a, a long-term relationship, and uh, you know, Sawyer often went to Paris for dinners of the, uh, with the Charles Ritz and uh, the. Oh God! Sorry about that. Uh,
0: no worries. No worries. We always had buzzers and bells going off here. Are you
1: there? Yeah, you know, just as I say, it was a long term relationship. Uh, two very, very different uh, men. And I think going back to uh, uh, Brigadier Carey's relationship with uh, Sawyer again, you got uh, S- Sawyer, the uh, keeper and Carrier, a high-ranking army officer, but uh, carry treated Sawyer with respect. And uh, that was the basis of their friendship. I mean, Sawyer didn't like you know, the army officers who said, oh, come on, Sawyer, get us another cup of tea. And, and you know, sort of pulled rank on him.
0: Yeah, and, um, you know, you know, th- A lot of things that Sawyer did was kind of radical, um, imparting nymph in in all the, this is a great article and we're going to publish, republish this article when we come out with the Trout Bum Chronicles, a book series that I'm working on right now, um, that, you know, the things he did just broke apart what was traditional and customary in the, in the chalk stream world. And, um, of of the of the Houghton Club and the you know the River Itchen that Skews was on, you know first of all what Sawyer did um, was you know come up with his deadly and slow stalking of the River Avon's um, brown, and his various color pheasant tail nymphs and his long pison parabolic taper bamboo rods, he took what we're doing today we're fishing longer and longer rods, he took uh, nymphing to a whole new level. Uh, he his his killer bugs and buzzers, along with his pheasant tails made extremely selective trout looked gullible and feed comfortably on these patterns. And there is that there is a saying that only some flies catch the fish and a majority of the flies catch the fishermen. So this was sort of the Bible that uh, Sawyer uh, came uh, uh, into his whole uh, repertoire, and Sawyer trimmed and cultivated the weed growth. And as you mentioned, you know, we you you watch the 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 nymphs, the blueing olive nymphs, the drunellas, the betas swimming out of the weeds, um, you know, things of that nature. And and Sawyer was, you know, very much um into using just a series of small set of flies. Like we talked about a guide's liking of these are my top ten flies and I fish them. Um, Sawyer only fished five patterns of nymphs, but he tied a good number of experimental patterns that weren't successful and um as good as my as he says as good as my artificials had seemed to me they had not deceived the trout and he was constantly reinventing himself but in the end it was always the pheasant tail nymph the killer bug um those flies that he stood stood with and if you look at the pheasant tail nymph it, the silhouette is perfect um But does it look like the modern flies that we tie today with all the legs and and everything being so exact and naturalistic? Um, You know, uh, Sawyer advocate that nymph fisherman who wants wants his nymph to swim in as natural a way as possible should gather in all his slack line after casting and then make a slow, even lift of the rod tip and just enough speed to animate or make the artificial swim naturally, eliminating excess slack allows the angler to maintain good contact with the nymph. So these are basics. But uh, I remember when I did selectivity, you helped me out and you gave me some beautiful images of uh, the true original Sawyer's um, pheasant tail nymph. And then I think you had contact with, uh, I don't know if he's the grandson or the nephew. I think it was Nick Sawyer. Give us a little bit more about that and your interpretation of the pheasant tail nymph, Terry.
1: For those who are interested, if you go to the uh, Salisbury District uh, Angling Club website, uh, you will find a, a, a link to uh, a video of Frank Sawyer uh, tying uh, pheasant tail nymphs. So you can you can see how he he tied them, and uh, uh, as you said, Matt, uh, you know the basic uh, of the fly is. Three strands from uh, three fibres from the uh, centre tail feather of a, a cock pheasant and very very fine copper wire. Um, I, I, I've never quite understood Sawyer describing the copper wire as as fine as a hair because you know that's a hell very very fine and it was actually thicker than that. And, but uh, you know that's all the all the fly is, and as you say, it's probably the world's most uh, famous nymph today. And uh, you know the, the coloration and the shape of it uh, defines you know just what the the hungry trout is looking for.
0: Yeah, and. Um... So on this note, we are going to take a break, and uh, uh, we are going to be back. And when we come back, we're going to talk about site nymphing and how we go about site nymphing. A little more of the the strategies in traditional site nymphing, uh, equipment choices, uh, more of the nitty gritty uh, that we talked about. But I, just to, just before we take the break, I'm you know th- this whole thing about the pheasant tail nymph to Sawyer, it was a perfect nymph swimming with his legs tucked underneath his body um, because he had many critics along the way saying, you know, you didn't do any heckle for the thorax. You didn't try to make some sign of legs. You didn't, you d- it didn't really look like a nymph. It had a silhouette of like a, a, a torpedo or a, or a nuclear submarine, but it really didn't look like the nymph. And Sawyer said, well, you know, my interpretation is, um, you know, this is what the nymph looks like because he spent many hours on the stream looking at the clear waters of the Avon and watching nymphs swim. And uh, you really didn't need the legs. The legs were for showrooms. The legs were for for uh, custom ties that attract fishermen but don't track the fish. And that's where he was nuts and bolts and he was, uh, I'm, I'm going to use flies that catch fish. So what are those, like you said earlier, I, I prefer the buggier looking. Things that attract fish, not what attracts the anglers' flies, like the bins and in, in the House of Hardy that you go to in London and see the bins, or you go to the best fly shops, the the uh, in Livingston, Montana, and you see the bins and bins and bins. And oh, I'm gonna get this one. It looks the greatest. It looks just like the look like what we perceive, but what we perceive and what the trout perceives are two totally things. And that's the difference between I think Sawyer split from SKU's is was uh glitz glitz to hard working man on the river, which is of course your gilly. On that note, we will take a break and we'll come back talking about sight nymphing and tackle and what's going on today in this world. And then we're going to talk about his books, Terry's books, and his perceptive uh perceptions on comp angling. We will be right back. and lines have been around since cro magnum man and neanderthal man when they were living in caves and in the alps in europe trying to find out how to catch the brown trout that were in the rivers and the atlantic salmon that were running up the hollowed waters of europe's rivers and to do that correctly you need the finest quality possible and nothing more is entitled to that quality than angler sport group And their incredible portfolio of Daiichi hooks. Daiichi hooks are at the pinnacle of the hook experience from all their dry fly, nymph, wet fly hooks, specialty hooks. I am particularly fond of their specialty dry fly hooks uh, in the very micro, minutiae sizes, wide gaps that allow for the hooking, like some of my favorite hooks by Partridge back in the day with Vince Marinero's Mitch hooks. But their designs today are absolutely incredible. Also, Varivas material is absolutely at the top. Their leader systems, their fluorocarbon, their colored leaders, which come in lime green and light blue and different colors, allow you to fool some of the most selective trout, some of the most selective salmon and steelhead in the world. Varivas is by far at the pinnacle. Suppleness, strength, diversity is all encompassed when you use Varivas and Daiichi hooks. All at Angler Sport Group from New York. Books are the foundation of Hollowed Waters Podcasts. We talk about them in reverence, all the great literature that our sport, our art form, our passion. Of hollowed waters and the sport of fly fishing, has given us it has its strong link to where all of this has come from. The books that we have featured are in bibliographies in the Hollowed Water podcast series and in the repertoire of the many guests that we've had ever since Hollowed Water started, starting with iconic guests like Paul Weimer's book and Kelly Gallup's, and Simon Gosworth and Rick Custich and Topher Brown's Atlantic Salmon books and Al Coochie and Dr. Bachman and the list goes on. But basically, what I'm trying to say here in this advertisement is that we need to pay attention to all these great books and the best way to do that is to go and sometimes dig into your Amazon or your local fly shops or your local bookstores Barnes and Noble and get a hold of them. Um, also, some of the books and some of the experiences I've had with books has been truly the crux of my fly fishing career, like my selectivity, the theory and method of fly fishing for fussy trout, Atlantic salmon, and steelhead, and also my latest book, *The Brown Trout Atlantic Salmon Nexus*, which details the history and the lore, the tactics, the techniques for these wonderful fish that we love. We would love you to go and experience more, to log in to our website and see the bibliographies we have had and explore your joy of the many authors for the many decades and perhaps centuries that have given their knowledge and their wisdom and their craft and shared them with you. Hello, listeners. This is Caleb, editor and producer of the Hallowed Waters Journal podcast. This episode features music by Dutch EDM artist Arpo. You can find them on Instagram at Arpo Music and find their music on all major streaming platforms. Our thanks to Arpo for the use of their song Floating and for their support of the Hallowed Waters Journal. We are back and we are talking traditional nymphing in the proper English uh, perspective with Terry Lawton, our astound author um our our, our distinguished author um and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about his books but we're going to talk about back to, you know the 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 whole thing about this whole perspective is is that we've um everything was driven off the site nymphing uh, genre and that's how. Pro traditional nymphing, upstream nymphing, uh, you know, induced take the Sawyer's induced take, lifting the rod tip, letting the nymph swim to the surface like a natural betis or drunella, um, and it was all of the observation of the trout how they react to your flies. So different than Euro nymphing, which we're going to talk a little bit about, and then we're going to do a separate podcast on Euro nymphing. But Terry just uh, had his uh, tea at uh, four o'clock, uh, his proper tea. I'm having my Canada dry. Uh, zero Sugar Ginger Ale. Um, I'm not doing Mountain Dew or anything like that, guys, or Gatorade Power Plus. But uh, but anyways, John Waller Hills was an amazing mind. I've always loved his books, uh, A Summer on the Test, one of the best I've ever read. Um, and he he just had such an incredible... He 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 summed up all the... Percent- have you been a big fan of John Waller Hills, uh, Terry?
1: Yes, and I do agree that... Uh, The Summer on the Test is a fantastic book, and I've often thought that it would make a wonderful uh, television series, you know, on nature and fly fishing and uh, so on. I'd love somebody to turn it into a broadcast like that.
0: Well, there's always time, Terry, so uh, you're still with us. Um, I, I bestow that project on you. How does
1: that sound? I, mean, I think the other thing that's interesting about uh, Hill is that, that he was, what in this country is a fairly rare beast, and that's an angling uh, politician. We've never really had as many as you've had in the uh, in in the states, with uh, uh, you know Jimmy Carter in, in particular, and uh, other other presidents have been uh, keen fishermen. Yeah, absolutely. But, uh, uh, I think uh, Matt wants me to uh, talk about my books and uh, how I sort of got into writing. I've always been interested in uh, writing, and uh, as as Matt said in my intru- in his introduction to me, that uh, um, you know I'd written quite a number of m- magazine articles. And uh, was it was about 15 years or so ago now that I wrote my first book uh, on the history and art and practice of nymph uh, fishing, because at that time it seemed to me that uh, it was a subject that uh, nobody had uh, written about in anywhere. And uh, so I, I managed to get a, a publishing deal and... Uh, whilst the book didn't sell as well as I would have hoped it might have done, I think it was uh, better received in uh, France and Italy and by European anglers than than in this country and the other thing was that uh, when when I wrote it um, I'd always intended to uh, follow up with another another book that would uh, take the the history sort of right up to date which is what I endeavored to do in my latest book, um, Nymph Fishing in in Perspective. Um, But uh, there are probably aspects that that I've missed out or should have covered in uh, greater detail, but uh, I did my best.
0: Yeah, it was, uh, I I highly advise, they're all available on Amazon, correct?
1: Sorry, I didn't catch that.
0: They're all your books are available on Amazon, correct?
1: Yes, some of them are out of print, unfortunately, and uh, but uh, secondhand copies are available. Um, nymph fishing is current and available, and uh, whilst he was a great dry fly man, my biography of uh, Marriott, the prince of uh, fly fishers that is uh, currently available um through the, the the publisher i mean Marriott did a little bit of nymph uh, fishing with uh, halford but they, they 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 weren't terribly successful so that was a um a, a development that they didn't uh, pursue as much as they perhaps should have done i think uh, poor old halford if he'd caught a fish on a nymph um, i think he'd have probably have had kittens because at that that time nymph fishermen were con, considered to be little less than than poachers uh, it was very bad form to fish nymphs
0: yes yes um let's get back to hills let's get him into site nymphing and then we're going to get into tackle and then your views on comp fishing and things of that nature um you know, so it, it, John Waller Hills he wrote this beautiful piece. You mu- and this is out of a uh, summer on the test. Uh, you must cultivate an eye. Quote John here. You must cultivate an eye for for the for water and an eye for the trout. The gift is not easily attained. In all cases, it requires practice. Cycle and some never acquire. They can be learned by nine people out of ten. It is learned into a lot of other um, rivers around the globe one very effective way to fully struggle is to pre- present a nymph so uh, he gets into the, all these things about the quivers of the fish and watching watching the movement of the fish and 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 uh he goes on what seems easy is very hard looking looking at the water not like we are casually examining it but intently boring into it determining to penetrate its hidden recesses. You must train yourself to pick out a flicker, a movement, a darkness, a luminosity, which if you stare at it hard enough, will resolve itself into a slow, shadowy form. It may be a weed or a reflection or a shaft of light to wavering water. But on the other hand, it may be a trout. Whenever, therefore, you pitch upon anything unexpected or surprising, uh, which by remote chance may be a fish. Never leave it until you solve the riddle. You will waste time on stones or gravel or sticks or such, etc. like it is remarkable how you improve and nothing improves you so quickly as being with someone who is good at the game. And that's Summer and Test by Major Wallace. So it was a little flicker. Um, I, you know... I studied this. I studied it on the on the Spring Creeks that I fished in, in uh, the Cumberland Valley, on the Big Spring, particular on the Latour, on the Falling Spring. Um, you could see the sudden quiver of his little pectoral fins when a nymph comes in its window. Um, that usually is a sign. There's excitement there. You could see the backing up, of the ventral fins maybe quivering. You could see the fish backs up or moves to the side. Or you could see all the motions of a fish and this this bilateral vision of knowing where your nymph is, knowing where the fish is, knowing when he moves quickly and opens his mouth, how many times we miss the take. Um, and so this Spring Creek site nymphing is pure hunting and I and I wrote in selectivity it's pure hunting plain simple bilateral and extremely acute vision is required. stalking at a low profile out of the sun's shadow is a must like Sawyer did, he ended up having back problems. Like I have, uh, because he was bending over so much and stalking so much on his hands and knees, like uh my our our dear late friend Ed Shank did above Bonnie Brook. Uh all these things that the site nymphing was appearing into the into the world. And there are phases of the site nymphing, deep, midwater and surface nymphing, bulging and tailing out, uh to deep presentations. Uh, it is important to get your nymph down, knowing where it's at. Um Having that weighted nymph or putting tungsten in, um, you know, or, 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 or like Sawyer did copper wiring um, and then raising or twitching the rod, a ring lift or Sawyer-induced stake. Um, there was a feeding lane of about six inches to a foot you had to get into. And um, an extremely selective niffing trout won't move very far to its side, up, down, to the side to take a fly. On a rare occasion, you will see them move more than, rare more than a foot, but the waters must be crystal clear. You know, so these are the things that came with it. And the, the nymph designs, uh very slick, very sleek, and like the killer bug was nothing more than I think a sow bug in in most of their interpretations. Um etc. Nymph designs today, um how how do you see them? Are, are the patterns in the UK are still the traditional Sawyers you know, pheasant tail, killer bugs. What do you see? Do you see the new school of beadheads, Ufish beadheads, paradigm nymphs? Uh, wh- how, what does your nymph box look like today, Terry?
1: Well, you, you've just mentioned the importance of practice and confidence. And uh, the, 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 the quote from Hills was really to encapsulate the importance of being able to spot fish in the river i mean a, a, a lot of fishermen that i meet don't see fish in the river primarily because they look at the surface of the water they don't look through into the into the river and uh, as as you quoted hills saying that uh, you will perhaps see the tail of a trout uh, moving from side to side out of synchronisation with a, uh, a piece of weed, by it, and that's a you know very good telltale sign of a, a fish. Or on a sunny day, the fish may cast a shadow on the river bed, which gives gives away its uh, its position. But uh, my my nymph box today is plenty of pheasant tail nymphs. Um, some with bead heads and some without. Uh, I've also tied a number of grey goose nymphs. But as I said you know, at the start, um, I'd probably end up using just sort of buggy ones. Um, I've got lots of flies that I've never fished, um, but I wouldn't want to be without them for those days when the old faithfuls don't work. Um, you know, you do get these days when you go through your fly box and uh, still still not catch anything. Um, I think uh, over, over the seasons, I've started uh, fishing smaller flies than I, I did some years ago when I perhaps tied flies on sort of size 14 hooks. But today I'm more likely to fish a, a 16 or an 18 and... Uh, I struggle to tie anything smaller than that, so I'm, I'm happy those sizes work. Yeah, um,
0: and so so uh, are, is the beadhead is obviously very popular today. Paradigm Paradon nymphs, uh, all the new Euro nymphs—is that really becoming popular there?
1: I I, th- I, I think so. Yes, um, you no know, competition. Uh, fly fishing is. Um, popular in this country, even though I think it's completely and utterly wrong. Um, You know, we're greatly influenced by, uh, particularly today, Spanish anglers and uh, French anglers who tend to do well in uh, competitions. Um, But as I say, it's not a a development that uh, I would applaud yeah, and
0: and you're right. I, I strongly advise people to pick up your books um because you get into very big detail on on the on this pheasant tail nymph, and, and you basically here's another quote from your book. According to Charles Riss, the French hotelier, Sawyer had created a series of nymphs of varying patterns and weights, ballasted with extra fine copper wire, which facilitates the imitation of the various exploitable phases of these insects' behavior. He described rather nicely Sawyer's control. ...over nymphs as being like a microscopic submarine which he, which must respond immediately to the slightest command transmitted to it by the rod. Ritz's description of Sawyer's control of his fly is just as true today as it was then. It is usually fairly smooth in flat waters of English chalk streams or American spring and metal creeks. When making longish casts with lightly weighted flies... Which then the time and distance is sink the required depth. So he was like a submarine commander. He could move him, lift him. Uh, that was the control that we had back then, and that's I think part of uh, you know what Euro nymphing is trying to do today. And and you also go on to talk about where exactly on the hook did Frank Sawyer start tying the pheasant tail fly or olive nymph? In consequence, how many layers of wire did he use? I mean, you got into some pretty specific details uh, in your latest book. Uh, on, on how to tie them correctly and properly and stuff like that. So, uh, pretty cool stuff. Well, I, did, um, I, go
1: ahead. I, I did that because, uh, you know, over the years, there have been so many uh, badly tied uh, so called pheasant tail nymphs, and, uh, you know, people have fiddled about with them and added hackles to uh, imitate legs and so on and things like that, which, of course, you know, the original. The you know, didn't did not lead and uh, you know i just felt that somebody should put in the public domain exactly how uh, frank sawyer tied his flies
0: yeah you did a very good job of it and uh so i highly encourage people to get your books because you have so much in there um let's talk about your setup how do you nymph you know what is your what is your rod set up now with your leader set up um, let's tell, tell our listeners uh, the way you go about your traditional nymphing.
1: I'm, I'm fairly untie, unscientific in, in in many ways. I'm using an eight-foot-six, two-weight uh, two eight, uh, rod. Um, Bamboo over, or, or, or graphite? Over, uh, it's home-built on a New Zealand blank. Um, and uh, over the years, I've used quite a lot of uh, airflow poly leaders, but uh, more recently, I've started making my own uh, twisted leaders, which are, uh, the 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 taper is in in two sections. Um, I like quite a nice long leader because I like to keep the end of the uh, fly line. Away from the uh, fly, and uh, I use a, a, a tippet uh, probably most of the time about uh, four pounds and a good uh, uh, sort of arm span long. And uh, you know, as that gets reduced in length when I change flies um i i put on a new tippet when it was about half half the length so uh, you know leader and tippets i'm looking at something about uh, 12 or sometimes uh, 14 feet um i don't really feel the need to go any any longer than that and uh, if, if the lead is too short, as I say, you're going to end up uh, with the end of the fly line too close to uh, the business end.
0: Right. Um, do you use um, split shot or, or tungsten sometimes to get it down or you put the weight into <laughs> the fly? How do you design your fly?
1: <laughs> That's uh, alien to me. I've, 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 I've never felt the need and, uh, you know, with with a with a nymph tied with uh, uh, lead wire to weight it or or a tungsten bead I've I felt that virtually all the time that I'm actually getting down as as deep as I need to and uh, I, I I've never felt that I needed to add split shot to get the uh the, the, the nymph down to depth quicker because the, the the speed of flow of the rivers doesn't need that i mean if i think if i fished faster waters then i can understand that uh, putting a split shot or two on the leader might make sense right right
0: How, uh, Well, you your let's talk uh, your experience with uh uh, Czech, Polish nymphing, uh, Euro-nymphing, um, have you done much of it? What's your perception of it? Um, how, how do you see it evolving right now? Yes, well, uh,
1: the first time I did some uh, Czech nymphing was in uh, uh, northern Sweden. And, you know, I found a sort of shoal of grayling, and I stood there, one hand uh, resting on my wading stick, and the other with rod in hand and a short length of line and just sort of lobbing it upstream and uh, catching fish. And, uh, you know, for an hour or two, it was, it was quite fun. Um, but uh, not the sort of thing I'd want to do every day. Right. Right.
0: Um, what um, strike indicator, is that popular where you guys are? Um, how do, how do you see the strike indicator nymphing, which is very, very popular here?
1: Yeah. Um, The strike indicators I've used, I've always sort of tried to uh, make them as as, as minimal as as possible. Um, A little bit of, you know, tuft to sort of strike out, or something like that, or maybe um, some a pinch of uh, strike putty on, and, and, and not on the leader. Um, I certainly don't go in for sort of big bobbers and uh, you know some of these sort of foam pinch-on uh, uh, indicators, but you know people do do use them in this country. Um, right. I mean, I think uh, without sort of sounding too uh, boastful, I I feel that I I can detect most takes by concentrating on the end of uh, end of my leader where it. Uh, Breaks through the surface film, and uh, you know, looking for any strange movements. Whether it's the the, the leader checks and it's flow downstream or gets pulled to one side, something like that. You know, which indicates that maybe there's a there's a fish has just taken taken the fly. Um, you know, sometimes I'll go for a hook set and there's nothing there, and I will think, oh bugger. Um, you know, the next time. I'll perhaps be a little bit slow thinking, that, well, you know, there's nothing there. And then suddenly you realize that you've, you've caught a fish. Very exciting.
0: Right, right, right. How do you deal with weedy channels and stuff? Your you're, you're Wensum River, is that where you fish mostly? Um, do you it have is, people uh, that treat?
1: Go ahead. You know try and try and fish the fly down through the uh, the the channels between the weeds and that's where accurate casting comes in and uh, being able to uh, control and uh, manipulate the fly line to keep 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 the fly floating through the clear water right yeah that's
0: always been a challenge for me and um it's tough doing your series of men's to try to keep that fly in that channel and and all that good stuff which uh takes a master to eventually figure out and uh, that's the beauty of of chalk stream Spring Creeks is um you got to pay your dues on these things and you really have to spend your time and you just can't go in there and start flogging the water uh, as uh, they say in the British tradition flogging the water uh you don't want to do that you want to present uh calculate anticipate, Watch your fly penetrate, get to the right depth, uh, etc., make the movement of the fly. So yeah, these are your sort of a commander of your destiny. Uh, we are with Terry Lawton and we're talking traditional nymphing. And we are going to take our final break here, and we're gonna uh end up with our uh conclusion and our one minute zip clips with Terry. And uh on that note, we will be right back. I've known Marcos at Hairline for a long time since he had his fly shop in Glen Allen in Chicago suburbs, the and field. Marcos was a serious, serious fly tying guru, and he had every material known to mankind imported from all over the place. Marcos has since gone to Hairline, and has been there for decades now, and he's done such an amazing job of of taking that company and taking it to the upper limit of having a one-stop place where you get the ultimate quality in hooks and materials and feathers and tinsels and designs and tubes they pretty much have everything for the trout the salmon the steelhead fly fisher the warm water fly fisher but really they've come into their own especially in the spay area With the rx hooks the Daiichi alec jackson hooks all the intruder wires and materials by greg senyo and importing some of the best products possible Um, you won't go wrong by going to hairline and seeing the product offering they have they really have pretty much everything And, and even in the tube section the hmh tubing and stuff like that they have gone to the next level so i highly encourage you to shop at hairline tell marcos i said hi and it is truly one of the best um, all-around places to go for looking for that special material that you're in the market for. I can't say enough good things about G. Loomis rods. They're made out in Washington state for over 30 years and their latest NRX series are absolute bombs. Steve Rajeff uh, designed these Apex Beasts that are just amazing. Uh, their, their new uh, nano silka, um resin system uh, is so amazing that it makes them so much lighter and they could cast with so much more power throughout the whole rod. Um, the lightness and, and the power generates are so much more important for the line speed. And, and especially if you're doing scandy tapers underhand casting with sinking heads um deep dredging skadgets um with with heavier um weighted intruders um they do it pretty much all and even with floating lines like in long belly uh traditional spay casting uh the stamina for these rods and the long anchors in this traditional style and is amazing. Um, they're very rich looking and I highly recommend them as does my friend Tom Larimer, the, their representative out on the West Coast. So ask for G. Loomis rods when you go to your fly shop or visit them online at G. Loomis, but you won't be disappointed. Um, they're, they're, their whole technology is taking off and it's just simply amazing. If you're a serious spay fisherman and a swinger, uh, you're gonna really enjoy these rods. Hello listeners, as publisher of Hollowed Waters Journal, I'm really proud to bring you this magazine that we've put together and we've been going really strong for the last year. Uh, Our accolade-winning and amazing in-depth issues full of sumptuous photography, fly patterns and extensive tactical information can be purchased individually now in our archive series for you to read and reread over and over. We treat each topic and article as a mini Bible on the subject that you will explore with your passion and journey for trout, salmon and steelhead fly fishing. And we'll hopefully rethink your relationship with these fish and make you fly addicted for life. No other magazine has the content and depth as Hollowed waters journal. Find out what you've been missing and come to HollowedWaters.com today and subscribe. We are back, and we are concluding our podcast with Terence Lawton of the of the traditional nymphing school, author, writer, and his books. I highly encourage everyone to get a hold of his books on Amazon. Nymph fishing in perspective is his latest book, and uh, uh, a lot of Terry has a lot to say, and it's all in his book. Um, and he didn't want to give you too many of the secrets because he wants you to buy the book, right, Terry? So you got to buy the book. That's why Terry just gave you a little bit, but not too much. Um, anyway, so uh, where we are at, um, I think summarizing it, um, I think today uh, we've pretty much looked at this whole perspective. Uh, and uh, I think the evolution right now into your own nymphic, it's, a, it's actually a good progress. It's a good perspective from the wet fly to to traditional nymphing to site nymphing to euro nymphing which covers every piece of water um you have all the techniques that you need and um the more i i've been very critical of euro nymphing in the past uh because i am a uh, uh old white dude that is a snob and a purist in a lot of respects in the way i fish but i fish for everything i mean i swing flies i i do everything i dry fly fish i streamer fish i I, I try to broaden my horizon. And the more I'm putting this whole this whole thing together, uh, Euro Nymphing is is a beautiful conclusion. It's a beautiful part of this trilogy or this sequel or this story because it allows you to do things that you can't do. And Sight Nymphing was so particular and it was so a circumstance of of where they were at the time on English chalk streams and American spring creeks. And so everything does have its value. And if anything, uh, I am becoming more apt to to accept every type of style. And I, I strongly encourage our listeners to attempt attempt to pursue and master each technique because that's how you become a complete master and angler and, and fly fisher is to accept, broaden your horizons, and, and try to put your own slant on it and develop your own flies and your own techniques and, and things of that nature. So on that note, um, Terrence, um, do you have any concluding uh, comments to make before we go into the one-minute zip clips? Because the one-minute zip clips are where I ask you a question and you have a quick 15 or 30-second response to give me an answer. So those are sort of my doer's profile of the author and the writer that we have here in the in the BBC studio so terence your final concluding statements on nymphing please other than go buy my books something more enlightening sir terence
1: please i have just written down a few words and they are confidence which is just so important to all aspects of uh, fly fishing practice again terribly important Um, Accurate casting I think is probably more important with nymph fishing than with dry fly fishing. And finally, as uh, you quoted Matt, uh, Hills at some length, the uh, importance of the the ability to be able to find and see fish in a river that, that ideally are... Are feeding, and if you can, if you can do that, and you can cast accurately, you've got a jolly good chance of catching that fish.
0: Wonderful, wonderful words of encouragement. And now, the one-minute zip clips. So these are questions, Terry. That's my doer's profile about the author, and s- simple questions. Um, so. You'll answer them uh, very quickly, and we will go with, first of all, what is your favorite rod,
1: Terry? My current uh, CTS fly rod, but uh, there are rods that I would like to try, and I think probably the, the first one would be a Scott rod. Okay. I think their advertising is very, very seductive.
0: Wonderful, wonderful. Your favorite reel? If I caught you fishing tomorrow, I saw you fishing. What reel would
1: you be using? Oh, I've met a woman who owns uh, some fishing on the itch who had a, a hubless reel made in uh, Argentina. And that's got to be the sexiest fly reel I've ever seen. But uh, unfortunately, they're not made anymore. And they're quite quite a rare reel. So I hanker after one of those. What kind of lines do you like to use? Um, I'm using a snowbee uh, fly line at the moment. Um, I can't remember what the the name is. It's one of these uh, multi-weight lines and uh, extraordinary. It works beautifully. I mean, I can cast a fly... Fish that cast, lift off, and then cast straight back upstream without the need for any uh, false casts. So wonderful, wonderful.
0: I think Davy Wooten, uh, my wet fly uh personificated, wonderful guy. Um he uh he uses them also. He mentioned it. Um what um what are you a monofilament or fluorocarbon? What kind of uh leader construction guy are you?
1: But just to go back to the fly line, it is a a weight forward uh, floating line. Mm -hmm. And uh, when it comes to uh, tippet material, I use uh, stroft, which is made in Germany. It's uh, up to strength and it's easy to knot and it's fine diameters for its uh, breaking strain.
0: Yeah, I've, uh, I've used that. it for
1: many years and see no reason to change. Wonderful,
0: wonderful. Uh, yeah, the good stuff. Uh, I, I uh, Dave Bishop out in Gaspé introduced me to that stuff for Atlantic Salmon. It seems to be really quite good. Um, uh, so um, let's go back to simple things like your favorite all time movie.
1: Oh my God. <laughs> Two Lane Blacktop. Two lane blacktop. Okay, Warren uh, Oates, I believe.
0: That's a that's a good that's a good one. What is your favorite book of all time? Non fly fishing first. Fishing first. Non fly fishing and then fishing. One book of each. What's your favorite? Uh, book?
1: I, th- I think uh, fly fishing has probably got to be John Waller Hill's "A uh, Summer on the Test." Um, Wonder- I'm not sure that I've got a f- favorite non-fishing book. It's not that I don't read plenty of books.
0: Moby Dick. <laughs> okay. Um, what is your favorite meal? If you had one meal that you had to have before you become electrocuted or you <laughs> you pass to the next world, to the nether Avon world,
1: um, uh, what 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 meal would that be? I think it would be some nice seafood followed by a a jolly good English pudding, a bread and butter pudding, or a a trifle. There you go. There you go. Fish and chips. Do you like fish and chips? Yes, but not sort of ecstatically.
0: Right, right. Well, I'm a fanatic on fish and chips, and I'm a seafood crazy person too. Your favorite drink, um, if you partake in the... In the libations, the alcohol libations. Do you have any favorite
1: any favorite drink? Yeah. Gin and tonic and a nice pint of uh, draft bitter. John, do you have a favorite gin? Yes, Drum Shando which is an uh, Irish gin. It's ah. wonderful. Ah, Irish gin. Your
0: favorite dessert? Oh, you said, was it, was it a bread and butter pudding?
1: It's this one, yes. And uh, Sussex Pond is a jolly good uh, English steam pudding, ideal for uh, lunchtime in the winter.
0: Wonderful. And your favorite pastime, if you're not fishing, what would be your favorite pastime that you like to do? <sighs> <God. laughs> You've got this stump there. Mountain Fighting. climbing, rappelling, bird watching. Uh, scuba diving, you got to have one.
1: Well, I used to do a lot of dinghy racing, but I think you know, sort of pastime today would be flight tying. There you go, wonderful.
0: Okay, ladies and gentlemen, there you have it. Our author and nymph fisherman in perspective, Terry Lawton, read his books, they have a lot of, lot of good, juicy stories in them. Um, and uh, and that note, um I was going to tell you a good editor's joke, but I'll save it for next time. Um, it's a long one. So we're trying to put Terry to bed. The poor guy's been up. He's on British time here uh, on, on our Eastern Standard Time. So uh, anyways, Terry, uh was great having you. Uh, we finally made this happen with technology and Zoom and all this stuff. Uh, It was a laborious laborious affair, as I would say in the proper British term, but we made it happen. So any final words, sir?
1: No, we struggled, but we got there in the end, and I've thoroughly enjoyed it.
0: Wonderful. Thank you, sir. Uh, You have a quiet night and restful sleep, and uh, thank you for listening, uh, listeners. So on that note, we bid you au revoir, au revoir, Das Fidania, do dobranoc, adios, and uh, goodbye.